at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Curiosity Habit. Today I have with me Dr. Sarah Jartley. She is a consultant in palliative care, honorary senior clinical lecturer at the Marie Curie Palliative Care Research Department at the University College London. Thank you, Sarah, for being with us and welcome. Thank you very much. So the way we start this, and as I mentioned to you in my email or our exchange, is that we are more interested about the person behind the research. As Of course, we will be talking about your topic of research, but to begin with, we always like to hear your story. Like, who was Sarah growing up? Uh, what was she curious about? Any stories that we can give us a sense of why you are where you are these days? Yes. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm based in England, and, and that's where I grew up. I was um, born in Salisbury, um, somewhere much more small than where I am now in London, but um, moved around quite a lot with my parents, just with their work. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to medical school, um, although my mum did train as a nurse. She wasn't quite so keen on healthcare and, um, as a profession, as I turned out to be. And, um, and yeah, I guess I was always someone who was curious about things uh, that were sort of where people were involved. So, so for example, when I was at medical school, the first few years uh, when it was quite theoretical, um, although obviously I tried to make it as applied as possible, um, I found that quite a struggle. And, and it was very much kind of keeping going because I really wanted to be able to do the doctoring when I got out the other end. As soon as we started um, seeing patients, interacting with them and their families, things just fell into place so much better. And um, that was evidented by going from just passing to a little bit better than that, to quite a lot better than that in the grades. But, you know, it's really that connection to people um, that, that brings things alive for me. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that's always been a thread. Um, you know, things that I'm interested in are, are where people are either interacting with each other or with something else, you know, some part of the system or life um, where people are affected. Who were the main influencers for you uh, in your life so far that you can remember of being very, very influential? So, um, you know what well, I would say the person who taught me most about the way I'd like to be whether it's in my personal life or my professional life is still my mum okay. um, we used to joke when we were children myself and my siblings you know that sometimes my mum had her face on in inverted commas and what we meant was you know you'd go to the supermarket and um She'd say to the checkout girl, are you okay? And then we'd all have to stand there while she burst into tears and told my mum about how she'd split up from her boyfriend and my mum looked after her. And, you know, she just always had this way of having time to stop and listen to people. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think, you know, if you asked her, she would say, oh, I'm nothing special. I've never done anything great with my life. But she always 
was able to connect with all sorts of different people. And I think I really learned a lot from that. Um, and as much from that as any formal formal training I've had. I think since then, I've um, had lots of different people who've contributed, um, but there's a common thread of the people who, you know, even when I was much more um, junior in my career or when I was, you know, growing up and quite naive, like lots of people are when they're thinking of um, applying to medical school, people who were generous with their time, um, people who worked with me, collaborated with me, spent time with me, mentored me, often very informally, but who did it in a way that, you know, treated me as an equal. I was never their peer, but, you know, treated me as this is a, a joint enterprise. And, and having benefited from that, that's something I really try to, to pass on, you know, share what I've got and, and help people who now come to me um, in that situation. But, um, you know, I, I guess I'm a grown up now because I find myself on the other side of the equation. Well, that is so great to hear about your mom's influence. And I was just wondering about that. And then your choice for a specialty, you are in palliative care, which is a very interpersonal kind of a specialty. How did she, was she part of the decision for you to go that route or uh, on how has she influenced you in your approach to your specialty? So, um, no, I think when I went to medical school, I thought I wanted to be an ophthalmologist, oh. which um, would have been a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> um, I think that actually came from, I had a really great teacher at school who taught me physics at, at A-level, which is the pre-entry to medical school in the UK. And, um, you know, again, it was the connection. They were enthusiastic. They, you know, um, loved their subject. And of course, there's a lot of physics in, in ophthalmology. And, um, but when I arrived at medical school and started, um, you know, learning about all the different areas you could practice and also being taught by a, a wide range of enthusiasts, um, you know, including a lot of social scientists, it really opened my eyes to the social end of the medical spectrum. And I think that fits with what I talked about, about what my mum taught me in terms of, you know, I'm somebody who um, science has to mean something to people for it to really connect. Um, and um, I, I love working in an area where things are personalised and individualised. So, for example, working with a patient, not saying, you know, this is the medical model, this is the way that we think about risk or think about safety or, you know, that that's dangerous, so you can't do that. You know, if I if I'm say I'm seeing a palliative care patient at home, you know, we have a conversation about what their priorities are. And often they're choosing between, you know, there are trade-offs because there is no risk-free option. But I love that I get to work with them. And they get to have a say in the priorities and I'm in an area that is allowed to be flexible to, to recognise that. Um, and I think within the medical world, my skill set sits very much at the social and social science end of the spectrum, although obviously I'm aware there's a much bigger spectrum in once you get outside of the medical world. Yeah. So given that you are in that specialty that is very personable, the kinds of conversations with your patients and their families, how much of the patients so far 
have influenced you? Like how has you grown from the time you started to now that you have changed and you realize, oh, I've never thought I would have learned that any other way. Mm. Mm. I think it's, you know, it's a real privilege to be part of somebody's life at a really critical time for them. Um, and that's not just about the person who's a patient. You know, obviously, they rarely come entirely on their own. Um, often there are friends, family, other people about as well. And, you know, I'm sure it's changed me in lots of ways. I think from every conversation you have, there's, there's something about being reflective and honing your skills. And, and, and there are probably hundreds of examples of that. But to give you quite a... Um, a sort of concrete example um you know when we we're at medical school you you get taught how to introduce yourself um and, and explain who you are of course you do and for a long time I would always introduce myself as you know I'm Dr Sarah Yardley I'm and then whatever stage of my career I was and 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 if I'm honest, one of the reasons I did that is because actually, if you're female, you can go through the whole being the doctor thing. And then at the end, people will go, oh, so when's the doctor coming? And, and I, right. who, who did you think I was? <laughs> um, but, but actually, you know, sometimes you walk into a house and someone's dying um, or you walk into a, a, a side room or even a, a, an open ward. And, you know, actually, the connection needs to be just I'm a person, I'm here, I'm not going away and I'm going to be with you in this. And, and if you, what you need from me is stuff that a doctor knows, fine. But actually, if you just need me to be another human being who's not going to leave you to, to look at this on your own, that's what you need. And so often I now say, call me Sarah if that's what you want to. Or sometimes, you know, I might just talk into the patient, particularly somebody you know who's perhaps drowsy very frail just say I'm Sarah I'm one of the doctors so they know but it's a very different interaction and I think um, that there is something about just meeting people on that human to human level um, that I think is a skill I've very much grown from my experience with patients and carers. I imagine it's also the ability to read the situation because I imagine not every conversation you come in you will have it in a, in a certain way, right? Not being in a box. So from no. that, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I guess that's, you know, it's a little bit like, again, going back to medical school, we all learned how to take history. And when you start out, you have your systems review at the end and you have your three questions for each system when you have to say it all and, you know, and you ask everything in order. Um, and then, you know, now I go in and I say to patients, what's important to you? What do I need to know to look after you? What, what, what are the things that, what's the number one priority to sort out just now? And when we've got all that, then we work from there. And, um, you know, you've got that, you're slotting things into what is now subconscious in terms of your medical history taking. Um, so, so the conversations are individual. But also, I guess the other thing that I really believe in is saying, actually, I don't really know how to say this, or um, this is a really difficult thing to say, um, and, and kind of being tentative and allowing 
them to see that you want to find the right words. But if you get it wrong and something jars and they don't, you know, just say, I'm really sorry that that didn't come across how I wanted it. And I think, you know, it's really important not to be afraid of saying sorry, um, because that's that's how you find the right way forward. Yeah, that's so good. And I imagine also that um, this kind of a specialty also drives you into your interest in medical education just because of the kinds of skills you need to help students with. So what was that key moment that allowed you to see, okay, medical education is the piece that I want to invest scholarly? Like when that happened, who helped you see that? How did you get there? So. Um, I think, you know, again, on that enjoying the interaction with people that that drew me um, down the sort of teaching and learning um, interest. Um, and I had some great, great role models and, um, you know, saw people who um, were in medical education doing great things. Um, and also, you know, I was taught by some of them. In terms of getting into medical education more formally, I guess I had this thing about, you know, sometimes it's great and sometimes it isn't. Um, and also a, com a common thread throughout all my work, whether it's clinical teaching or research, is what I've already talked about in terms of the connection and interaction between people. But another common thread is where there are gaps between the sort of ideal, how, how things happen when they're described on paper, you know, the way things are supposed to be, and the real, actually what it's like to be in the midst of this, be muddly and messy and the experience of it. Mm -hmm. um, And, and thinking about the gaps in between. So there were things um, as I became more senior as a doctor, I could see where the, there was problems between um, the sort of formal view of what things, how things worked and how people learned and what was needed. And then a contrast between what people who were learning experienced when they went into practice. So that really developed my interests. And there are couple of people who I would name specifically. Um, first of all, Tim Dornan, who I'm sure lots of people will have heard of, who absolutely embodies what I talked about at the beginning, the generosity of collaborating with somebody, even when they're very naive and quite junior, <laughs> um, and, um, and, and really um, being incredibly collegiate. Um, and, and he certainly has been an inspiration and a role model and you know, is now a friend. Um, there are other people, there's someone um, called Catherine Walsh, who's a um, professor now at Lancaster University and um, was um, a palliative care nurse doing research, or a nurse doing palliative care research rather, um, when I was in my training and I worked with her on some research ideas that um that related to to those themes and then there have been lots of other people along the way probably far too many to name but who have helped me develop those ideas um, there was a really lovely uh medical education research group at Keele University where I did my PhD um, a lot of the people there who you know it's that having critical friends um, who, who talk to you and 
and, and sort of challenge your ideas, but actually listen to you as well. And I think that really grows something very special for um, you know, developing yourself and, and developing your teaching, learning, research. Now that you mentioned the people that inspire you and help you and all those connections, I was just wondering, how did you go about choosing where to go for your PhD once you made the decision? Because I guess many people wonder that. Like, it's not like, oh, yeah, that's the program. I'm going there. There must be more than that. How was it for you? So I think this is one of the things that now I can see, again, from sort of the other side, is that, you know, just like most people's careers, it's a mixture of, um, you know, trying to make it happen and serendipity yeah. <laughs> um, and chance. And, you know, I feel when when you're asked by people, particularly, you know, more junior people who like, how do I get there? And you're like, well, you know, sometimes it's being in the right place at the right time. That's a really frustrating answer to give, but it's also the truth. So I um, I pro progressed through a sort of fairly standard medical um, career as a, as a newly qualified doctor, junior doctor, going through different grades. And then had the opportunity to do some research with Catherine, who I just mentioned. And, and then I knew I liked research. And I already knew I liked teaching and, and um, education side of things. I, I'd had a, a job for a while that involved that. And I'd done some um, training, um, a certificate in education to try and improve my understanding of the theory behind it. So I was in the middle of my specialist training in palliative medicine and um, thought, you know what, I, I actually would like to do a PhD. So I kind of had three areas that I thought I might look at. I thought I'd look at medical education. Yeah. I looked at palliative medicine slash palliative care. Um, and I looked at ethics and law, which fascinates me. But thankfully, I didn't end up down because I think um, that probably was less my, you know, Sort of skill set really but um and whilst I was in that process um Keel had set up um a few years prior as a medical school and was becoming fully independent um running its own starting to run its own curriculum um and um was keen to expand not just its medical education but the research around that so they actually advertised for a PhD student um, so I applied like a job um, but they were really really flexible as to what the subject of the PhD should be um, and so my PhD looked at first and second year medical students experiences of um, early practice um, and so that was partly clinical but also you know they were sent out into voluntary charitable um, workplaces that related to healthcare social care related to healthcare, so a whole range of things. Um, and I was able to investigate how students made sense and created meaning for themselves from their experiences and compare that to both what their workplace supervisors thought was happening or should be happening and what the faculty who had designed the curriculum Thought was going to happen and wanted to happen and then to to close the loop by sharing with students the three perspectives and getting them to talk about that um, and so I could think about some of the unintended and unpredictable consequences that come from you know 
sticking stuff out there into the real world as opposed to, um, like I said before, what, what happens on paper. Um, so the opportunity, you know, it was a case of me looking, someone had some funding, they were prepared to um, help me develop something that really interested me and, and help them as well, because this was all new. So obviously it was, it was helpful for them to see what actually happened um, from their, their design of the curriculum. So when I was looking at your work, which I think is fascinating because you explore so many areas and I can totally see how you were so curious growing up and still being curious now. So I picked two pieces that got my attention. One is on your PhD, you explore what you call authentic early experiences. And just the language is fascinating. And I was wondering if you can help us understand what does it mean from your perspective? Um, can you give us an example of what you found while doing that research? Yeah, so um, I think a striking example was at the time students, um, one of the things they did was they actually went to see a post-mortem. Now, obviously, in later clinical years, um, that might become more, much more routine, but, but how the curriculum was laid out in the second year, going to see a post-mortem was a big deal. Um, lots of students haven't seen a dead body before they get to medical school. Um, and they, they did do dissection in anatomy, so they had had that experience. Um, but obviously, postmortems are usually done because there is some question about the cause of death. Um, and so that's slightly different to, to their anatomy experiences. And um, it was really interesting because they would go and there was a pathologist who was really keen that they, they had a holistic learning opportunity from this. So it wasn't, it was obviously about, this is how I do a postmortem and the science right. and the pathology on one level, but he was really keen that they, he taught them through um, how he taught to families about what was happening. Um, about the importance of how they cared for the person, even though they died, and about looking after the person pre, during, and post the actual carrying out of the postmortem. Um, and um, when I interviewed him, all of that came across. When I interviewed the students, um, there was kind of a paradox because the interviews, if you read them, the language is of absolute horror. Um, to begin with and then gradually as they talk through they sort of turn from talking like a person who's had this very authentic as in it was real life and it was the first experience of it um, thing um, and they've been thinking it through and then they start to depersonalize the, the patient who's died and you see that thread developing as a way of coping, and that is by no means a criticism of those students. I'm sure I went through the same process. I think most doctors probably have. And perhaps we need to gain more experience to then come back to being able to hold in our minds that this being a real person, a human being like us, and having been put through this. But the paradox was that that went on. And then every single student said to me, but you won't tell the medical student, uh, medical school, sorry, that we were really upset or, you know, and some of them cried in their interviews because it was really important. We really want, you know, we don't want them to stop letting us go on this experience. And I think you know, if 
if we hadn't had that depth of interview and that analysis, it would have been very easy to jump to the conclusion like, oh, they're not ready for this, it's too traumatic. But actually the learning was really rich and and what the outcome of this was, was that um, we thought as a medical school about how do we make sure that learning is, is as constructive as possible rather than let's take away the experience because it's unacceptable. <laughs> um, but it was really interesting how they already had the insight to say, yes, this is, you know, a massive thing for me to process, but I can see how it's really important. And I'm sure that's partly due to the skill of the pathologist in, in turning it into a holistic experience rather than a very sort of cold, factual one. Yeah. So fascinating. Thank you for sharing with that. And it's so interesting because the second part that I was going to pick about your research is the, your, your paper about using autopsies as an educational opportunity which I thought yes. that's so cool. So let's talk about that a little bit. The, the, the students told you, don't take it away. This is really important. However, it was really complex experience. And you talk about them using the personalization as a, as a coping mechanism. And you saying maybe that's what they need to go through before they actually come back to the being a person again or focusing on the people's skills. How are you using the autopsies right now as an educational opportunity to walk them through all that process from horror to realizing, okay, this is what we need to do? So, so I'm, I personally am I'm, I'm not because I'm not involved in, in that, that medical school anymore. But what the medical school did was put in place um, a a space where it was explicitly said, lots of people have had, felt like this, had this kind of experience. Let's, let's put it out there. Let's be explicit about it and let's talk about it. Um, and I think, you know, the pathologist was already, who, who did most of the placements was already trying to do that anyway, but it was about dialing up the explicit, if you're feeling like this, that's normal. Okay. And that's okay. And let's talk about it because we can all learn more from that. Um, and let's think together about that, what that means. To give you a, another example of why that's important um, from the research is I one student who, you know, it still sticks in my mind, told me about the experience of sitting in a GP surgery. And the medical school, as I was saying at the beginning, all medical schools, I'm pretty sure, you know, had really drummed into them. You must introduce yourself to patients. You should, you, they must know you're a medical student. You should be asking, is it okay for you to stay? All absolutely good stuff. And, you know, you should, that patients and families should know that you will maintain confidentiality and exactly the same as the qualified doctors do. And, and this student told me, well, you know, that's what the medical school says, but GPs don't do that. So, you know, it's not something that really matters. Now, of course, most GPs have met their patients before. Oh. You know, it's only going to be every now and again that somebody right. comes into the surgery who they absolutely never met, never had any contact with. And also in the general public, I think there's an understanding about doctors and confidentiality. So most GPs patients would think they were completely mad if they went through that whole spiel every time they came to surgery. Not I mean, it probably would take far too long, you know, an appointment's only five minutes. But that student didn't have 
it, they didn't have what perhaps we might call the common sense, but it's right. not common sense if no one's ever told you. Right, <laughs> um, exactly. And so they, they couldn't, you know, they were making sense of it on their own. And I think, you know, those are two good examples. Um, maybe, you know, the second one is less dramatic, but yeah. of we need to think what is it really like to see this for the first time? Um, and you don't know any of the stuff. You know, there is no common sense for you because it's all new. Um, so I think I think that's a, a thing that you know a lot of the things that came out of my research, both in that medical school and I'm told um, other medical schools, people thought about actually we should be very explicit about you know, and if something doesn't make sense, talk about it. Because there's probably an explanation that we, you know, it, it's not your fault. You don't know it yet. Right. It's, it's so interesting because when you talk about the authentic experiences and being the first time that you experience something, is too, I'm thinking about it's kind of the aha moment that you get the first time you see something. So helping to see that someone to get that aha moment in the right way is important. From your work and your whole career, what do you think has been one of the most gratifying experiences for you or moments so far that, that really feels yeah. <laughs> that keeps you going and maybe something sticks in your mind that feels good about what you do I think I think there will have been lots of those um but to give you one sort of from the much more recent past um I'm now working on um research that is about the relational aspects of care in both palliative care and um, psychiatry, mental health. And um, so, and that's funded by a institute called the um, Health Improvement Studies Institute, um, which is, as the name suggests, about it studying how to do health improvement better. And getting the funding for that I felt really validated what I've been trying to say throughout my whole career um, both clinically in my teaching in research about the the people in the system you know the people create the system the people are the system the people are also in the system but we shouldn't pretend that if only the people all read the right books and did the right things everything would be perfect because yeah. the people are the creators creation of all of this stuff and and relationships are always going to be a really important part of healthcare and what I hope I'm doing is now um, developing ideas to think more holistically about things like safety and risk and, and building on that early work I talked about with my PhD about let's think about unintended consequences and the unpredictable as well as the outcomes that we're looking for so I think um that getting getting that um, and, and another recent grant from Marie Curie have been pivotal for me in that, um, you know, these are what I think of as proper funding <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that validates that, yeah. um, you know, what I've been talking about is yeah. something worth exploring. Yeah, I can totally understand where you're coming from. It's those little moments. The word validation, I think, is, is the one that resonates with everybody that moment is I got that grant and now I feel like I belong in a, in a way yes but thank you for sharing 
couple of more questions because you already answered my question about what you're working on right now. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, more on the personal side, I also like asking people about what they do when they're not you wearing the hat of the researcher. What do you like doing? What? How do you feel yourself outside your professional life? So basically, I love being outside. <laughs> so, um, so uh, my husband and I, um, we sail. We we race um, a fourteen uh, foot dinghy um, together. Um, less so, obviously, during the pandemic. But um, um, yeah, so. Uh, being outside, being on the water, um, I, I love to get out paddle boarding and uh, swimming outside is my my latest uh, thing to do. Um, so I had a I had a swim um, in the Thames this morning before I got wow. <laughs> and got going with my work. Um, so um, so yes, uh, I just yeah love love that, and um, I think. Or the common thread in those activities is that they kind of switch your conscious brain onto something else. And that both gives you a break from the stresses and strains of the job. You know, for example, it's been a difficult clinical day. There has been something that has been difficult or upsetting. Um, It allows you to think about something else and, and give your brain a break from that. But also it somehow allows your subconscious to be working on those things, particularly research things where, you know, you're not consciously thinking about it, but sometimes good ideas come after you've uh, been out and about. Oh yeah, for sure. How, how far are you, have you sailed? Like when did you start sailing and where have you gone? Oh, so um, my husband's a doctor too. Um, he's a surgeon and we um, graduated the same year from medical school and decided it would be a good idea to take up something that we both needed to learn. So neither of us was any good at it oh, good. <laughs> before. Yeah. So, so we did. So um, that was in 2000. So quite a long time ago now. Um, normally on, on our dinghy, we we don't actually go very far in distance. And if you have a GPS recorder, it looks like we've sailed around and around in circles because okay. we're racing um, around the circuit. But beti- between our um, early training and becoming uh, registrars, so like residents, um, doing our specialist training, we took three months out and sailed around Britain on a bigger boat. Um, wow. So, um, yeah, so all the way around is uh, <laughs> the furthest I've ever been. That's so cool. I like that idea. I'm going to borrow that. Pick something that nobody has an advantage on. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) My my final question again is also on your personal side. If you hadn't been a physician or a researcher, what do you think you would have liked to do? I think that I would have definitely still wanted to do something that involved working with people. Yeah. Um, I think I may well have enjoyed doing uh, another profession like social work or teaching. Um, I like it would definitely also be something that there was a role for a bit of creativity. So, you know, use the evidence where there is evidence, yeah. but some creativity and application. Um, mm. And, um, and yeah, I think, I'm really fortunate to be able to express that in what I do as a doctor, but I don't think those things are unique to doctors by any means. So 
I may well have ended up doing one of those things or something completely different. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I have to tell people in the audience that Sarah approached me over Twitter, which was so great to hear that many people are listening to the podcast. And, and it's been such a great conversation. I do appreciate you approaching us. Uh, it was awesome to have you in the show. Thank you for thank sharing you. your experiences. Thank you very much. It's really lovely to talk to you. And great to meet you in person after all these months. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.